This is tax update number nine for August the 6th, 2005. This tax update is going to deal with a little more informal look at some of the recent developments that have occurred since a number of things have happened in the recent past from a tax development standpoint. Plus, today we plan to talk about the self-employment tax FICA issues revolving S-corporations that spin off of a new development that we have that will be going over. Today's podcast is being recorded in my office, which sits much closer to Indian School Road than the room I usually use when I am uh, recording this podcast. So you may hear some traffic noise in the background as things uh, roll by. We have a few new developments. One thing I wanted to mention is that uh, for those who are here in the Phoenix area, The announcement went out this week that I will be presenting on September 20th at the Hilton Garden Inn for the Arizona Society of CPAs, a discussion on Circular 230 and the new updates for the various written advice rules that we find in the revisions to Circular 230 that took effect this summer. Uh, Information on that is on the Arizona Society of CPAs website, ASCPA.com. Search in this continuing education area look for the September 20th presentation, which will be a luncheon presentation, lunch plus a two-hour presentation on Circular 230. This week saw a number of developments in the tax arena. Uh, Seems as if a number of things were happening before we got to August when everybody left town. Some were driven by the fact that Congress is leaving town in Washington. Therefore, two tax bills made it through and are to the president's desk, one of which has more significant provisions than the other, but both of which we're going to do a brief talk about today and may do in more depth later. Plus, a number of important rulings and announcements came out during this time. Let's take a look at some of the revenue rulings that came down. We had two revenue rulings that are of somewhat some importance that you might want to look at if they apply to you that we're just going to cover briefly. Revenue ruling 2548 held that a restri- that stock was restricted under Rule 10b-5, 10b-5 of the Security and Exchange Act of 1934, does not, present, pre- does not prevent vesting of a non-statutory option, meaning the employee has to recognize the income. Uh, under those rules, certain stock is restricted if the employee is in certain positions in a public company. They are restricted from selling the stock for a six-month period. The IRS has ruled in this ruling that that does not allow the employee to defer recognition of the income for that six months. If you have clients who have such options or who are receiving options under SEC restriction, you need to take a look at this ruling and understand the concepts going on here. Also, if you report for such entities, you need to understand the IRS position as these are includable in income now and would be includable in W-2 wages at that point. Secondly, in a continuing issue that's been going on, Revenue Ruling 2005-52, the IRS rules that a tool allowance plans for technicians did not meet the requirements for an accountable plan. This was 2005-52 issued. Uh, essentially, there was an arrangement where there was not a full accounting required, but there were certain concepts they said equaled averages. And in that case, the employer had accounted for a portion that had been paid to the employee as an expense reimbursement under a reimbursable plan, as we discussed previously, what a reimbursable plan is and what it requires. The IRS discusses here this issue. This is a continuing issue that has come up in a number of areas. 
the IRS is continuing to work in this area, is proposing certain changes and has come into certain agreements, but is basically saying you can't shortcut the provision. A development that has gotten a lot of discussion on the Arizona Society of CPAs listserv, and which has also gotten some discussion elsewhere, was the development this week when the IRS released the draft of the new 4868 for 2005. Confirming what we had been told before, the 2005 Form 4868 first extension for an individual return now shows will be a six-month extension of time to file the return. That is, next year you don't have to come in on August 15th, as is coming up for most of us a week from Monday, and have the second extensions filed for your clients. When the extension is filed at April 15th, it will be good for 10 months, and the due date of the return will become October 15th. Since the six-month extension is statutory, that's the most can be extended, this will be the only extension filed for individuals. They'll be on the same footing essentially as corporations, a six-month automatic extension of time to file. Other interesting item you will note on the 4868 is there's no longer a box here for filing a gift tax return on the draft form. The gift tax return now has its own separate extension form, and essentially the IRS now is moving off of putting the gift tax extension box on a 4868. That particular document is available for looking in the, at on the IRS website at this point. We had two new bills that have passed the Congress, one of which has been signed by President Bush, the other of which we are told will be signed by the President on Monday. The two bills were the Transportation and Energy Bills, and both contain some tax provisions. The Transportation Bill is important to most of us in income tax practice, not so much because of what was in it, but because of a story that got out about an item that was included in the Senate version of the bill and which erroneously got reported in some locations as being included in the final bill. You may have heard a discussion that the new bill was going to require a deposit to be paid with offers in compromise for lump sum or if a offer was made that was going to be paid over time that you had to start the payment plans while the IRS was considering the offer and these amounts would not be refunded if the IRS rejected the offer in either case. That provision was added by the United States Senate along with a number of other revenue raisers including areas dealing with the economic substance uh, with, with economic substance tests, with the questions of frivolous return penalties, a number of provisions, revenue raisers, were put in the Senate bill. Generally, if you look at H.R. 3, which is the number of the bill, and you look at the conference report on H.R. 3 and the conference bill, those provisions were not included in the final bill that the Congress passed and has become law and will become law upon the President's signature and everyone expects the president to sign this, or everyone, this bill was signed, uh, basically those are not there. The important thing is not to act at this point that they are there, but to remember that they have been raised, and this is a place Congress may look for in the future. All of those revenue raisers are on the table should Congress decide they need money in the future. The second bill, which the president is scheduled to sign on Monday in Albuquerque, is the energy bill. The energy bill contains a number of tax breaks, some of which are very specialized in the energy industry, which I'm not going to talk about at all here, but I'm going to briefly summarize some of the more important ones that deal in the consumer areas or general business areas. 
What is in very important to understand on this bill, though, is that almost all of these items are effective beginning next year. A client or taxpayer who goes out today and performs these acts will not get the credit. You have to be careful here because some clients are known to read the newspaper, see there will be a credit for upgrading their windows, run out and do it, and then they'll come back to you next year and want to know why they didn't get it because they know it's there. Be careful. Remind your clients that, not, that these credits are generally effective next year. Now, the energy bill, there are a number of credits. There's going to be a credit of up to $500 available for basically home improvement energy credit, $500 lifetime credit. Now, there are some quirky limitations here, but generally it's equal, the credit is equal to 10% of the cost of qualified energy imp efficiency improvements, plus the cost of qualified energy property, uh, heat pumps, water heaters, etc. that qualify up to $500 lifetime maximum. Now, there are some quirky limits for specific components. You can get no more than $200 in credits for window components, $50 for an advanced main air circulating fan, $150 for any qualified natural gas, propane, or oil furnace, or hot water boiler, and $300 for any item of energy-efficient building property. How's that for a nice term? Added to your property. Again, a $500 credit, it's basically 10% of the cost. It is effective next year. It will cover a number of items. You're going to have a lot of issues here. All of these items generally have to meet certain tests and requirements. Again, we're accountants. We're not engineers. We don't do energy tests. It's going to be an issue where clients are going to find these representations of what qualifies and what doesn't. They will have to get that from the vendor or contractor they deal with. A credit that will be near and dear to those of us in Arizona, most likely, is there will be a credit for residential alternative energy expenditures. How's that for a nice term? This credit is equal to 30% of the cost of eligible solar water heaters, solar electricity equipment, and fuel cell plants. Maximum credit is $2,000 per tax year for each category of solar equipment, so we can have multiple categories, and $500 for each half kilowatt of capacity of the fuel cells installed per year. There are special rules that allow condominium and cooperative owners to split any items that are installed for the overall building or facility. Uh, and again, this is for 2005 before 2008. So basically 2006 and 2007 are the two years involved in this credit. So be aware those are out there. Those of us in Arizona may remember solar energy credits. Well, they're back and expect, especially here in the Southwest, to see a lot of push in this area. There also is an increase in the business solar investment tax credit from 10% up to 30%. So it was tripled in this particular period. So these rules, again, have place have take place of that. We have a number of new credits and change credits dealing with alternative motor fuel vehicles, uh, which, of course, in Arizona would be a very sensitive issue for those at the state level. Those who aren't in Arizona won't understand that one right away. Those who are have need no explanation of the issue. But essentially, we have some various credits and changes there that we'll look to in more detail. One key issue to remember, though, did not deal with energy that may be important and may have been overlooked when you look at this was one of the things Congress did to help pay for some of this, partially pay for some of it, was they changed the calculation or the methods involved if you sell code section 197 intangibles, multiple 197 intangibles in a transaction or series of transactions. That is, you must group all 197 trans, all 197 intangibles together 
in computing recapture. Under the prior law, what you had to do was essentially you allocated among the various items. So you might have had recapture on one, no recapture on another, because you may have said the agreement not to compete is not worth anything. The goodwill is worth something. Therefore, we'll recapture part of the goodwill, but the agreement not to compete because it ran out is no good, or you know it's going to run out in a week, so it's, no, it's not any good. Basically, under the new law, What's going to happen is, and this law was effective to dispositions after date of enactment, so my understanding that the president, my understanding the president will sign this on Monday, so it means anything Monday on, or after the date of enactment, so Tuesday, this is the rule, if he goes ahead and President Bush signs the bill as expected, you must aggregate all of your 197 intangibles and compute your recapture on the aggregate amount. So that does mean that you will recapture that agreement not to compete, even if, in fact, it's not worth, it's basically not worth its book value, that's not relevant, you don't get to assign to goodwill and get the capital gain treatment on the goodwill gain. So that is one of the key issues that is in this bill, Code Section 197 Recapture. That was Act Section 1363 of the provision, and it adds Code Section 1245B9. So that's an important new provision to check in the law. Now, back to the main subject today, and you may have wondered when we're going to get there. Uh, the IRS announced on July 26 that the IRS is going to conduct a new study of S-corporations for compliance purposes. If you haven't heard, and this was Newswire IR-2005-76, their news release, they are going to examine 5,000 randomly selected S-corporation returns from the tax years 2003 and 2004. This is a National Research Program audit. What does that mean? As you're probably aware from before, that means this is the full-blown, all-the-way-through-the-return type audits that we're going to be looking at here so the IRS can discover how S-corporations are not properly reporting. Why is this here? Well, the number of S corporations have exploded, according to the uh, according to the news release. From 1985 to 2002, the release notes the number of S corporations with more than 10 million in assets grew from 2,305 to 26,096. And overall, since the mid 1980s, the number of S corporations in 1985 was less than 725,000. Today, it is over 3.1 million in 2002. Not today, that's a couple of years ago. Therefore, the research program is going to be, as it's noted, a complement to the study of individual underreporting. That leads us to one of our key issues. Well, what's the IRS looking for? Obviously, one of the real hot topics in S corporations has been the question of FICA and self employment tax. In this case, not self-employment tax, but many clients have been told that the way you avoid self-employment tax is we're going to incorporate you, make you an S-corporation, and you're going to take your income out as distributions. The theory being, by doing that, if you were unincorporated and it came out either as partnership income or just came through your Schedule C, you'd pay this FICA and Medicare, but we can perform this magic, and suddenly, by doing an S-corporation, we can magically convert it so that you're not going to pay these amounts. Now, this is one of those where we get to the difference between tax planning and tax evasion uh, as to what goes on and the issue as to how far you can go. 
So we're going to talk about some of the background and some of the issues. The materials for this are based upon the same June 25th, 2005 presentation I gave to the Phoenix Tax Workshop that we used in an earlier podcast involving LLCs and self-employment tax. This one's going to deal with the S-Corporation issue. Now, we had previously discussed the definition of self-employment income, the definition of wages. As noted, self-S-Corporation income is not found in either the list of wages, nor, by the IRS position, does it appear to be an item of, quote, partnership income. Now, little side note here that's covered in the footnote on page two of the materials is that to be honest, some have argued the IRS, if you look at the language of 1366B, uh, potentially the IRS could argue that, that the shareholders in the shoes of the corporation, the income would be treated the same as if the individual had earned it, and that would apply for self-employment tax. This has not been the IRS position in this regard. But some individuals, as we get to the controversies that have come forward, it has been suggested in some quarters that the IRS could solve the problem, which we're going to talk about here, that some see happening in this area, by simply regulatory indicating in regulations that from here on forward, S-corporation income will be treated as self-employment income because this section says basically you should be in the shoes of the corporation, should be the same as if the individual earned it, Aha, if the individual earned it, it was self-employment income. Therefore, it's self-employment income as an S-Corp shareholder. But let's go to the way the law has been, entreated by the, has been interpreted by the IRS and how it currently runs. The IRS position in this matter is actually summarized in Revenue Ruling 74-44, where in that ruling, and may surprise some to find that we're talking about a ruling going back over 30 years that this position has been there, uh, holds that payments received from the S-Corporation's dividends in lieu of payments of reasonable compensation to owners performing services for the corporations are wages, subject to FICA and FUTA taxation. Okay, key concept. You receive payments as dividends in lieu of payments for reasonable compensation. Now, please remember, this predates the 82 S-Corporation Revision Act. So when it says payments as dividends, don't suddenly get excited and say, aha, they're distributions. That may be true. Aha, now their distributions as defined by the law. Nevertheless, it's still the same issue that we're going to talk about here, and we have post-1982 S. Revision Act cases that tell us it's still the point. In fact, the IRS has successfully defended this position in court, at least in extreme cases is where they've tended to win, where no salary was paid, but virtually all income was paid out as distribution. Uh, for reference, Spicer Accounting, a Ninth Circuit case, those of us here in Arizona, that's important because the Ninth Circuit ruled in Spicer Accounting that an accountant who performed all services and took everything out as distribution, sorry guys, that's wages, that's a Ninth Circuit case. Plus we have the case of Radke versus the United States, which was a Seventh Circuit case, where it was similarly held an attorney who had done the same thing was subject to self-employment tax. We've had a number of recent cases come down where the tax court is held similarly as well, indicating that you can't get out of it this way. Again, the bad facts have been no salary taken. The taxpayer basically just took everything out, took big distributions out, paid tax. Now, the reason why we want to do this, of course, is because essentially where people are avoiding the FICA and self the FICA taxes or self-employment taxes. Now, 
The reasonable compensation position, though, the IRS, you must realize, is somewhat conflicted in how hard they want to pursue this case. Why? Remember, in a C-corporation context, we have the issue of reasonable compensation. There, the IRS primary concern is not that the officer was underpaid and FICA wasn't paid. Rather, their concern there is the officer was overpaid. The officer shareholder was overpaid, and what we have is a disguised dividend going out as salary. So there is a cap here. There's a lot. There's case law that tells us there's a level here. There's a reasonable level, and the IRS has to shoot this middle. Um, this tension between positions may explain the most famous case recently that we had come up on this matter, and that was the case of S-Corporation Income Escaping FICA and Self-Employment Tax. During the 2004 presidential campaign, you may have remembered it was disclosed that the vice presidential candidate, Senator John Edwards, had, way back when, when he was in law practice, taken a salary from his practice of $360,000 in 1998. Seems sufficient, seems big. Well, of course, John had done very well that year. Basically, he's a personal injury attorney. And the issue was... There was an additional $5 million of pass-through income from John's corporation that passed through to John. Now the problem becomes that created quite a stir in the press during the campaign about the abuse of S-corporations, quote-unquote, for avoiding self-employment tax. Of course, as you may be aware, it's not likely the IRS would like to go to court, even in the case of an attorney, and argue that a $5 million-plus wages are required to have been paid, because in a C-Corp context, that could come back and basically knock them down. That's especially true because we've had case law where, in the case of physicians, the IRS has succeeded in winning cases on reasonable compensation, even though we have service providers, where there were non-owner service providers in the mix, and that quite often would happen in a law firm or an accounting practice, an engineering firm. So the IRS probably didn't want to go to this position on John Edwards. That said, though, these cases are facts and circumstances driven. Your client's got to be ready to demonstrate that as required by Revenue Ruling 7444, if they receive payments they claim are not subject to FICA, they must have been adequately compensated for the services that were performed. Now, the practical problem. In many cases, we get these situations after the fact, not before. The client walks in the door, they've done this. In fact, normally they weren't your client when they did this, and now suddenly they're walking in. They researched this on the Internet, they talked with somebody, their friend was doing this, something was going on, they walk in, it's after year end, and you discover that their S-Corporation earned $100,000, they took no salary, and they took every cent of cash out of the corporation, so all the $100,000 came out to them. What can you do in a damage control context? What some CPAs have tried to do for damage control is to treat that $100,000 as basically non-employee compensation and pay the self-employment tax. That position, while having a certain logic to it, is not without some substantial risks. What's the problem? Well, it works only if the IRS takes a no-harm, no-foul position on the return. That is, they got as much money as they would have gotten had it been treated as salary, and, well, yeah, they got it later because it wasn't paid in as FICA and deposited timely, but, hey, they got the money, 
no harm, no foul, no problem. But let's remember back to the statutory construction. There are separate code sections and separate taxes are involved when we talk about self-employment tax versus FICA. They are not linked directly to each other. There is no provision that says merely because you paid self-employment tax, you are exempted from being assessed for FICA. And let's think about this one-person corporation where nobody else worked there. That corporation probably never filed a 941 or W-2s for that year. In fact, that's the complaint the client has right now. If you file a late 941, the return's late. They're going to get hit with these penalties because they're late filing. They've been late for months compared to the payment. And they're going to have to pay all this interest and penalties. And it's going to be horrible and awful. And why should they do it? You know, let's just treat the self-employment tax, maybe pay the tax for underpayment of estimate or the penalty for underpayment of estimate. That'll be pretty small relatively. We'll just accept it and go forward. The problem is if the 941s have never been filed, the payroll tax returns have never been filed, you have an open statute forever. It is completely possible that the IRS could assess back on those taxes and could do so after the statute had closed on the income tax return and the right to file a claim for refund saying it wasn't self-employment income. Truly, it wasn't self-employment income. That's good. We accept that fact. It was not SE income because it was actually salary paid out, so therefore the actual pass-through was less or the amounts taken out as distributions were less or the amount taken out as non-employee compensation, if you're looking at it that way, was less, so there was nothing to tax. But tough luck, your statute for claiming a refund has closed. That is a huge risk. Uh, you have a real problem with them going that way. The other problem with doing this comes with the new Circular 230 rules. In essence, we are doing this and we're telling a, a client to go along with this transaction when, frankly, there is no support under the law for this position. The new Circular 230 rules make this particularly problematical, but even under the old rules or the AICPA uh, SSTSs that for Arizona State Board of Accountancy considers enforceable, if you look at the regulations for the State Board, they specifically mention them, none of those would have allowed you to take a position that had absolutely no support whatsoever. Circular 230 and the SSTSs both say you can't take an audit lottery position. And that's essentially what you'd be doing here. You're going on the theory that it won't be challenged or if challenged, that they basically aren't going to assess against it. That may be very true on a practical standpoint, but it may not be, but it's definitely not true legally. And technically, you could not sign a return with that position since you know there is no support for the position whatsoever. That's the technical rules. Now, understanding some people have and will continue to sign such returns. The danger is, though, in an environment where we're seeing more and more actions by the IRS and the IRS is making noises about wanting to crack down on preparers, you have a position where and the IRS, in, in such a case, has basically an open and shut case against preparer for technical violation. The Office of Professional Responsibility could decide to move against that person, and frankly, it's an issue that you have to worry about. I would say that as a practical matter, at the very least, anybody who takes that position to cover themselves ignoring the Circular 230 and SSDS problems initially, and just from a liability standpoint to the client, would need to warn the client that this could result in a double payment of the tax, and that's tough luck what they're going to do. And then you still have to seriously consider what you would do 
about the issue of can you sign this return? Are you comfortable and will it happen? This has been the tax update for Saturday, August 6, 2005. Tax update as normal is not meant to be the end all and end all of these issues or tell you exactly what they are. I can infallible. This is intended for professionals who are able to research their own position, who are able to research and do their own backup, and no one should act on this information uh, without independently confirming it. This has been tax update number nine for August the 6th, 2005.